All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton, and it is Monday, or supposed to be Monday, and we are standing in the confessional corner. This week, looking at the gospel and its vehicles, as we look at Small Call Articles Part 3, Articles 4 through 9, as 4 talks about the gospel, and then it goes into the rest of the articles that we're going to look at today. So many of the basics of the gospel and of the church being talked about in this confessional corner. So let's get right into it. Article 4, the gospel. We will now return to the gospel, which does not give us counsel and aid against sin in only one way. God is super abundantly generous in his grace, first through the spoken word by which the forgiveness of sins is preached in the whole world, Luke 24, 45-47. This is the particular office of the gospel. Second, through baptism. Third, through the holy sacrament of the altar. Fourth, through the power of the keys. Also, through the mutual conversation and consolation of brethren, where two or three are gathered, Matthew 18, 20, and other such verses, especially Romans 1, 12. And so we have this setting up this week's discussion as we look at the gospel and the ways that the gospel works in the church. And it's not just the spoken word of the pastor preaching the gospel in the pulpit. It's also the spoken word of the absolution, receiving the forgiveness of sins, hearing that the forgiveness that Christ won on the cross for you is actually for you right here, right now. That is the great power of the gospel. That is what is the gospel's primary office, is to offer you and to assure you of the forgiveness of sins for the sake of Christ. And then as we look through the rest of the articles, we'll see, okay, we've got, it also happens in baptism and the sacrament of the altar, the power of the keys, which then goes into confession and absolution. And then also, ultimately, sometimes the gospel in its strangest work must also go into excommunication as well. And we'll talk about especially the gospel focus of excommunication when we get to Article 9. But Article 4, we talk about the gospel, the particular office being the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins. And this is done in any setting, even where two or three are gathered together or in front of the whole congregation. So you have those moments where you can have public confession, absolution, like is done in Lutheran service book, for the divine services, you can have private confession absolution where it is just you and your pastor. Both of those are the primary office of the gospel being done, and that is the spoken word of forgiveness. But that's not the only way the gospel works. We move into Article 5. Baptism is nothing other than God's word in the water commanded by his institution. As Paul says, it is a washing with the word, Ephesians 5.26. As Augustine says, when the word is joined to the element or natural substance, it becomes a sacrament. This is why we do not agree with Thomas Aquinas and the monastic preachers who forget the word, God's institution. They say that God has imparted to the water a spiritual power, which through the water washes away sin. Nor do we agree with Scotus and the barefooted monks who teach that baptism washes away sins by the assistance of the divine will. They believe this washing occurs only through God's will and not at all through the word or water. 
of the baptism of children, we hold that children should be baptized, for they belong to the promised redemption made through Christ in Acts 2.39. Therefore, the church should administer baptism to them. As we move on, baptism is nothing other than God's word of the gospel in the water. Nothing with the water itself. The Roman Catholics pride themselves on holy water. And you can even buy bottles of holy water through their catalogs. But what makes the water holy? Well, for them, it's the blessing of the bishop, or most especially the pope. But in most cases, the diocesan bishop, his blessing makes the water good and makes it have the power of washing away sins, taking fully away the word. But then you have the other side, where you have Duns Scotus and the barefooted monks who take away everything from the word and the water. And baptism only works if God wants you to be saved, if God wants to forgive your sins. And that is the problem. That is getting from the Catholic idea of salvation only under the Pope's realm to now God deciding from all eternity who is and who isn't saved. And we've talked about this in election before. We'll talk about it again, more especially as we get to the formula of Concord in a couple of years as the way this is mapping out to talk about what exactly does the biblical doctrine of election or predestination actually mean. But what happens in baptism? The word of the gospel is combined with the water poured over you to wash away your sins, to give you forgiveness. That is the gospel at work in baptism. We move on to the gospel going on from the one-time deal of baptism to the frequently repeated sacraments of the sacrament of the altar, the Lord's Supper, and then confession absolution. So we move on to Article 6. Of the sacrament of the altar, we hold that the bread and wine and the supper are Christ's true body and blood. These are given and received not only by the godly, but also by wicked Christians. 1 Corinthians 11, 29-30 We do not hold that only one kind of the sacrament is to be given, that is, the bread alone. We do not need that high reasoning that teaches that there is as much under the one kind as under both, as the sophist and the Council of Constance teach. Even if that were true, giving the one kind only is not the entire ordinance and instituted commanded by Christ, Galatians 1.9. Especially we especially condemn and in God's name curse those who not only refuse to give both kinds, but also quite tyrannically prohibit, condemn, and blaspheme giving both kinds as heresy. In doing so, they exalt themselves against and above Christ our Lord and God. As for transubstantiation, we care nothing about the sophistic cunning by which they teach that bread and wine leave or lose their natural substance so that only the appearance and color of bread remain, and not true bread. For it is in perfect agreement with the Holy Scriptures that there is and remains bread, as Paul himself calls it, the bread that we break, 1 Corinthians 10.16, and let a person so eat of the bread, 1 Corinthians 11.28. So in the sacrament of the altar, we have the gospel coming 
not with water, but with bread and wine. And with that, we receive the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We aren't like the Roman Catholics who, up until recent years, demanded that only the bread be given. But we, from 1517, 1519 on, following Luther's teachings, talk about having both kinds, the bread and the wine being given to the congregation. And so, as paragraph 4 in this article says, we especially condemn and in God's name curse those who not only refuse to give both kinds, but also tyrannically prohibit, condemn, and blaspheme giving both kinds. It's not only that you don't get one kind, but it's that we refuse to let you have it, that you aren't good enough to have it. You aren't, well, in the Middle Ages, really, it was the laity was not trustworthy enough to have the wine in fear of spilling it on the floor or on themselves or wherever. He goes on in the last paragraph to talk about transubstantiation and the fact that we don't care about it. Lutherans get labeled, especially by Rome, as believing in consubstantiation, which, okay, has a proper ring to it that it is with the substance. The word gives us the body and the blood with the bread and wine with the substance that there is there in the bread and wine. But we don't like it because it simply is too close to transubstantiation, and people just don't like big words. When you can relate it as being, this is the body and blood given in with and under the bread and wine, that is simple enough to understand. That is simple enough to believe. But then again, that belief only comes through the gospel working, through the sacrament, through the other means that has been given already. Now we move to Article 7 and the article on the keys. The keys are an office and power given by Christ to the church for binding and loosing sin, Matthew 16, 19. This applies not only to gross and well-known sins, but also to the subtle, hidden sins that are known only to God. As it is written, who can discern his errors? Psalm 19.12. And St. Paul himself complains that with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Romans 7.25. It is not in our power to judge which, how great, and how many of the sins are. This belongs to God alone. As it is written, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Psalm 143.2. Paul says, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. 1 Corinthians 4.4 4. The office of the keys is given by Christ, not to the Pope, not to the apostles, but to the whole church. The church then, in turn, hands it to the pastor as the public representative of the congregation, to the congregation itself and to the community. That is the ability to bind and loose sins which is exactly what we talk about in Articles 8 and 9. And all of it done on basis of the gospel. And it's not just the big out there sins. It's also the hidden subtle sins. I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength come 
to Jesus Christ my Lord or believe in him. That's a big one. But that I have thoughts that I should not have. I have thoughts of anger. I have thoughts of hatred. I have thoughts of lust. I have thoughts of covetousness. All of these things are bad. But only you and God know about them. The keys are still here for that. Because oftentimes it are those sins that bug you, that drive you to private confession and absolution. That brings you to really understand the power of the keys. And then sometimes there are sins that you do that you didn't even know that you did. As David said in Psalm 19, who can discern his errors? You know, keep me from hidden sins. Those are the sins that truly only God knows. Because maybe there was something you were supposed to do that you didn't do. Or there was something that you weren't supposed to do that you did anyway, but you didn't realize that you weren't supposed to. Those are the hidden sins. Those are the ones that we don't recognize very often, but are still covered by the pastor saying, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But it also covers those that we try to justify. Well, no, that's not as bad a sin. You know, that's not that's not really a sin. Now, whether it's somebody who has harmed us in some way that harboring resentment towards them, it seems justified because you know they hurt us. God still covers that sin with the office of the keys. And he does that by loosing those sins that we want to get rid of and binding those that we want to keep. He says, oh, you want those? Keep them. I won't take them. You can have them. You can work them off. And that is the point of excommunication. That's Article 9. But let's get into Article 8 first on confession and the loosing of the sins that we repent of. Absolution or the power of the keys is an aid against sin and a consolation for a bad conscience. It is ordained by Christ in the gospel, Matthew 16, 19. Therefore, confession and absolution should by no means be abolished in the church. This is especially for the sake of timid consciences and untrained young people, so they may be examined and instructed in Christian doctrine. But... The listing of sins should be free to everyone as to what a person wishes to list or not to list. For as long as we are in the flesh, we will not lie when we say, I am a poor man full of sin. I see in my members another law and such, from Romans 7.23. Since private absolution originates in the office of the keys, it should not be despised, but greatly and highly esteemed, along with all other offices of the Christian church. In issues relating to the spoken outward word, we must firmly hold that God grants his spirit or grace to no one except through or with the preceding outward word. Galatians 3, verses 2 and 5. This protects us from the enthusiasts, those, who, those souls who boast that they have the spirit without and before the word. They judge the scripture or the spoken word and explain and stretch it at their pleasure as Munzer did. Many still to do to this day, wanting to be sharp judges between the spirit and the letter, and yet they do not know what they are saying. 2 Corinthians 3.6 Actually, the papacy, too, is nothing but sheer enthusiasm. 
The Pope boasts that all rights exist in the shrine of his heart. Whatever he decides and commands within his church is from the Spirit and is right, even though it is above and contrary to Scripture and the spoken word. All this is the old devil and the old serpent, Revelation 12.9, who also turned Adam and Eve into enthusiasts. He led them away from God's outward word to spiritualizing in self-pride, Genesis 3, 2-5. And yet he did this through other outward words. In the same way our enthusiasts today condemn the outward word. Yet they themselves are not silent. They fill the world with their babbling and writings as if the Spirit could not come through the apostles' writings and the spoken word, but has to come through their writings and words. Why don't they leave out their own sermons and writings and let the Spirit himself come to people without their writings before them, as they boast that he has come into them without the preaching of the Scriptures? We do not have time now to argue about this in more detail. We have treated this well enough elsewhere. For even those who believe before being baptized or become believing in baptism, believe through the outward word which came first. For example, adults who have come to reason first must have heard whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16, even though they are at first unbelieving and receive the Spirit in baptism ten years afterward. Cornelius, living among the Jews, had heard long before about the coming Messiah, through whom he was righteous before God, Acts 10, verses 1 and 2. In such faith, his prayers and alms were acceptable to God, since Luke calls him devout and God-fearing. Without the word coming first and without hearing it, he could not have believed or been righteous. Romans 10.17 St. Peter, though, had to reveal to him that the Messiah, in whom he had previously believed as one who would come in the future, now had come, lest his faith in the coming Messiah hold him captive among the Jewish people who were hardened and unbelieving. He must now know that he is saved by the present Messiah and, not, and must not with the Jewish people deny or persecute him. In a word, enthusiasm dwells in Adam and his children from the beginning to the end of the world. Its venom has been implanted and infused into them by the old serpent. It is the origin, power, and strength of all heresy, especially of that of the papacy and Muhammad. Therefore, we must constantly maintain this point. God does not want to deal with us in any other way than through the spoken word and the sacraments. Whatever is praised as from the Spirit, without the word and sacraments, is the devil himself. God wanted to appear even to Moses through the burning bush and spoken word, Exodus 3. No prophet, neither Elijah nor Elisha, received the Spirit without the Ten Commandments or the spoken word. John the Baptist was not conceived without the word of Gabriel coming first, nor did he leap in his mother's womb without Mary's voice, Luke 1. Peter says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1, 21. Without the outward word, however, they were not holy. Much less would the Holy Spirit have moved them to speak when they were still unholy. They were holy, says he, since the Holy Spirit spoke through them. So far, Article 8 on Confession. Confession and absolution is there given by Christ, not as a torture, not as a torment for you, but as a consolation for your troubled conscience. It is there for those times where you really feel your sin, that you really feel the repentance for it and want to hear the words of absolution desperately, want to hear the gospel words of forgiveness.
And so we have it in our churches. We have it not only privately, but we also have it corporately so that the children can be trained to understand that I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them. This is what confession and absolution teaches our children, to understand that we are sinners and we need to come before God begging for his forgiveness as poor, miserable sinners. And this is not to be done by listing out every sin that you have ever done because you will never get all of them. We talked about that earlier. And this goes even into the functioning of the gospel in our lives. We talk about the baptism of children, being baptized and then being taught. Well, what about older children? What about adults? Well, they are taught and then come to baptism. Why? Because of the spoken word. They have reached a point where they can understand the word. They can understand the promises that the gospel gives and the benefits that are there in baptism, the benefits that are there in the Lord's Supper, the benefits of confession and absolution. All of these things are there for us. But in us dwells enthusiasm, that desire to do things our own way. That is exactly what the devil implanted in us, in our very natures and souls, by bringing Adam and Eve into self-pride and taking them out of God's word. And this is the source of all heresy. This is the source of all false teaching in the church is this is what I want to do. I think this is the right way to go. And I don't care who has other words. But Luther reminds us, God does not want to deal with us in any other way than through the spoken word. God has always sought us through the word. Go back to Genesis 3. What is, it, what is it that brings Adam and Eve out from the trees? God asking, where are you? The spoken word driving into them to cause them to realize that they have sinned. And absolution is there for those who repent. But what about those who refuse to repent? Well, that's Article 9 in excommunication. The greater excommunication, as the Pope calls it, we regard only as a civil penalty. And it does not concern us ministers of the church. But the lesser, truly Christian excommunication is this. Open and hard-hearted sinners are not admitted to the sacrament and other communion of the church until they amend their lives and avoid sin, 1 Corinthians 5. Ministers should not mingle secular punishments with the, this punishment from the church or excommunication. What is excommunication? It is the church telling open sinners and those who refuse to repent, those who see no need for repentance, to say, I'm sorry, you are not able to come and be a part of this church, especially around the table of our Lord, 
because there, because of your hard-heartedness, you will receive our Lord's body and blood, but for your judgment and condemnation and not for your benefit and blessing. And we don't want that. We don't want to harm you through the very gifts of Christ. We want you to be blessed. But for that, you must repent. And many people get driven from the church because of it, because they see the church as being hypocrites. Well, there are other sinners there. Well, yes, that is the go-to line for someone whose heart is hardened in their sins. For one who does not see that they are any different from anybody else because they can point out other people's sins. But they want to keep theirs to themselves, that they're okay. Them and God have a plan worked out. Well, I hope that works out for them. But everything that God has spoken to us in his word says that that doesn't go well for us. So we have the truly Christian excommunication, an office, a vehicle of the gospel. Why? To bring the hard-hearted sinners back to repentance. That is what excommunication is all about. That is what church discipline, as people like to call it, is all about. Disciplining for the good of the soul. And that is the gospel and its vehicles as we look at it in the small called articles this week. Next week, we'll finish up the small called articles looking at how that goes into the church as a whole, as a global entity, and see what exactly the church does and what makes church church and what doesn't. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton thanking you for standing in the confessional corner with me today and being here to hear the great news of the gospel to help you wrestle with the theologies around you. Amen.